Thank you, Dr. Bowles. If you would, remain standing. We're going to read together from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be looking at chapter 9, though. The 1 Corinthians chapter 8 will just help us to remind ourselves of the pattern that we discovered last week. So when you sit down after we read, if you would, turn your Bibles to chapter 9. Let's read together on the screen. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you weren't here last week, let me just recap briefly what we saw in chapter 8 to help you uh, get caught up to what we're going to be looking at today in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we were seeing Paul give instructions to his church about a particular issue with respect to food and that food that had been sacrificed to idols. And what we were seeing was a pattern that he lays out for them and how to discern how to handle this particular issue. And that pattern serves as a pattern that we can follow as well when we think about how to live holy lives in our own unholy land. And so the pattern that we saw as uh, he laid out his instructions was that uh, we, just like they, would need holy knowledge. We would need to think rightly about what God has said on a particular issue. In this particular case in chapter 8, it was to think rightly about this food and to know that what we eat doesn't make us more holy or less holy. The idols are nothing in and of themselves. But we also see him pointing to their freedom in Christ, that this church is, is free to eat or not eat because of what Jesus has done. He's been set, they're set free from the law. They don't have to, to worry about uh, checking those boxes. They are free in Christ. But this is the big idea that he drives them to, that love for one another trumps personal freedom. Love for one another trumps personal freedom. And it is this pattern, this pattern of holy knowledge and holy freedom, and then finally love trumping even freedom that Paul points us to in chapter 9, where we're going today. So do you have chapter 9 ready? Okay, over here I heard some yeses. Um, are you ready? All right, we're going to have to move because uh, I've been at children's camp all week, uh, so my sleeping and uh, eating have not been normal, so if I have to come down there and sit with you, I will. Uh, <laughs> Chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Let me just start by reading now what Paul does. He's going to he set up this pattern, knowledge, freedom, love. Love trumps freedom. He set that pattern up for them discussing food. In chapter 9, I just want you to know what you're going to be hearing. What he's going to do is he's going to set himself up as an example. He's going to take his own life and say, look at this pattern in my life. And it's going to serve to motivate this church to, to keep moving forward and letting love trump personal freedom. That's where, we're, uh, that's where we're going. So let's start in verse 3 of chapter 9, and we'll just read through. I want you to hear what he says. My defense to those who examine me is this. 
Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brother and Cephas, that is Peter, the apostle Peter? Or do Barnabas and I alone have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law, and here he's talking about the Old Testament law, the Torah, doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? Or isn't he really saying it for us? Yes, this is written for us, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? And just in case you haven't kind of caught what it is that he's saying here, let me skip down and read verse 14 to make sure that it's really explicit what he's after. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord, now he's talking about Jesus, has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Now, this is not the point at which I say, I'm your pastor and you're supposed to pay me. Uh, that's not what, uh, not what we're going here. But that is what Paul is saying to his church. He's saying to them, look, I have, uh, I've poured into you. I, I taught you about Jesus. I helped you know how to follow him. I protected you from those who were lying to you. And I've helped you find this new freedom in Christ. I've, I, I've been the one who shepherded you throughout all of this. And through all of this, you haven't paid me anything. You haven't given me any uh, physical return for it. Now, it might seem kind of selfish, but what he does then is he lays out the examples that they fully know, which is the other apostles, they've received help from their churches to keep doing their ministries. So he talks about uh, Cephas and the Lord's brother, that's James. Uh, the other apostles who had been going around establishing churches, they were getting paid, even so much so that they could take care of their wives and their families. So he says, that's happening out there, but it didn't happen between me and you. Then he points to the, their cultural examples, the shepherds and the vineyard owners. Uh, even those folks in Greek culture, they know that if you work, you receive benefit from working. You get a, a, a reasonable pay. You earn a reasonable living from your work. Then he points them to God's command. That's the point where he talks about the ox and muzzling it. He's pointing them back to the Old Testament and says even God has commanded that the one who works ought to get paid. And then we skipped over it, but in verse 13, he points into a Jewish example. He says even in the temple, even the temple where the priests are serving, they get to keep part of the meat so that they could take care of themselves and their families. The, the point that he's making is using all of these illustrations to say, if you work, you ought to get paid for your work. This is the setup that is being established. What he's doing is using that same pattern of 
Holy knowledge should lead us to a holy freedom. He's saying here that what we know to be true from the world around us and from God's word is that if you work, you ought to get to enjoy the benefit of your work. And in fact, he goes so far as to say, you, you're free. I, I, I ought to be free to enjoy this from you. Now, let me just pause here. Because for some folks, this is kind of, a, this is kind of an issue, the, the freedom to enjoy what it is that they receive for working. Maybe it's not an issue for you. Maybe you have the opposite issue where you enjoy stuff that you didn't work for, uh, maybe with a credit card or with somebody else's money, but I'm just going to lay that off for the side. But for some folks, enjoying what they have earned is hard for them. I'm one of those people. I am what you might call, in a generous way, a tightwad. Um, I just don't like to spend money on, well, pretty much anything. In fact, I had a pretty sad example of it here just yesterday. We, or Friday, I guess, we got home from, from preteen camp, and my older two boys got to go this year, and the first thing they did when they got home was they pulled open their backpacks, and they pulled out gifts that they had got for their little brother and their little sister. Uh, they had saved up some of their coupons to get snacks, and they bought Luke a little piece of, uh, of candy, and they had made this cross for mom and for Anna Grace. And, and so there's this great moment that I was watching of the generous spirit of my boys, and I thought, oh, I should have done that. Because I didn't get a thing for them, and I still am kind of embarrassed about it. So they, they completely outdid me in that regard. I never thought about it. My instinct is to, to grab and hold on uh, when it comes to, uh, to, to money and to physical things, and, and it's a struggle for me. And so if you're like that, you, you need to hear that the freedom that we have in Christ is that if we work, legitimately earn money, we're free to enjoy that. I was shaped at a time where something different was taught. I was taught that, uh, you know, if you had a lot of money, then you were probably selfish, and you were probably not doing what God told you to do, which is completely bizarre. It doesn't come from the Bible. And so I was sort of thinking in ways that were just not true. My knowledge was not holy, and so I still struggle with this. I heard a pastor say once, and it's been kind of helpful for me, he said, look, sometimes the most holy thing you can do is to blow some dough for the glory of Jesus and the good of your family. <laughs> and that was, that was important for me. So I have to work hard at sometimes just being extravagant to, uh, to do good for my family, not being foolish, not being, uh, not being unwise, not going into crazy debt, but it's okay to enjoy the freedom of what we have earned. So this is what Paul is saying. This is, I have earned this from you. I ought to be able to enjoy the material benefit of this work that I've had in our relationship. Everybody else gets this, but something's different in Paul's relationship with them. And I want you to hear, because Paul's big point is, again, not about that freedom. Though that freedom is real and it's true and it's important, what he's going to point to is, again, love trumps freedom. And so hear what he says. We're going to pick up about halfway through verse 12. However, we have not made use of this right, that is, the right to receive money from his church. 
Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. And look at verse 15. But I have used none of these rights, and I've not written this to make it happen that way for me. Did you hear what he said? This whole big argument about how if you work, you ought to receive from it. He says, I didn't write this so that you'd pay me back. You'd give me back pay for that work. I didn't write this so you could make it happen that way for me. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of this boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because an obligation is placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and to offer it free of charge and not make full use of my authority in the gospel. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, look at my life. He's just taught them with respect to food and the idols that they needed holy knowledge, they needed holy freedom, but that love for one another trumps their freedom. And he says, look at my life. I have been free for all of this time to expect some return from you, some physical gift. I've been free to expect this, but I don't want a dime from you. Why? Because I love you, and I want you to be able to see in me a picture of the kind of free love and grace that God has given to you, church, in Jesus Christ. And so he says, don't give me a dime, because you would deprive me of the opportunity to show you love in this sacrificial kind of way. What he sets up is a pattern for all those who claim the name Christ, all those who are Christians, to follow. What he sets up is to say, look, the, the law for Christians is not that we're supposed to give 10% of every dollar that we earn. Oftentimes it's taught that way, that what we're supposed to give financially is that we have to give 10%, and that's what God expects of us. And if we want to stay in good graces with God, then we have to give 10%. The question then is, well, how much do I have to give to be okay with God? But what the Apostle Paul does is he, he sort of obliterates that whole paradigm. And he, he creates a new question. The new question is not, how much do I have to give, but what does love require? Now, our church is good at this. This is a church, y'all, that, that knows what it means to ask that second question. What does love require? Not how much do I have to give. We've, we've got a group, a small group here, who has adopted a family who just had quadruplets and they're providing food and care for this family and these babies. That's four babies, four newborns all at once. That's, that's some crazy stuff right there. But this small group has been organizing care and concern for this family to make sure that, that they have resources that they need. And you know what? That family doesn't go to church here. They didn't ask, 
Well, are they our responsibility? Are they part of us? Are we the ones who are supposed to care for them? No. He said, what does love require? There are people who need help. And so they move to help them. We've, we've seen this with, with people who are giving up their vacation over the summer. We've got some families that, uh, instead of taking a vacation to Disney World, they, they took their kids to Uganda, to Uganda, to serve with uh, poor children in Africa. We have people this past week who, who gave up their, their week, and our teenagers did this too this week, to just serve our city. They served all across this city. They didn't ask, how much do we have to do? They said, what does love require? And they did it. Our church knows how to love this way. One of my favorite examples of this is what's happened with our Columbus 365 campaign. This has been our church saying, look, we believe God's called us to the center of the city to, uh, to serve at the crossroads here in a unique way. And because of that, we have to take care of this physical campus. We've got to start, uh, we've got to fix some stuff around here so that we can best serve our city. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet or not, but it's in the, in the bulletin today. Columbus 365 gifts to date. Have you seen this? Y'all have given $2,009,034.94 in seven months. It just, it just doesn't happen that way in church fundraising. But, but Columbus Avenueers said, it's not how much do I give, it's, it's what does love require? And so people have given extravagantly, generously, sacrificially. One of my favorite stories was one of our senior adults on fixed income came up to me and said, Pastor, I, I mean, my income is limited. I don't, I don't have a lot to give, but I want to give this. Is this okay? <laughs> and I said, yes, by all means. The sacrifice was out of love. And though the amount was not huge, it was significant. And the love behind it was huge. This church knows what it means to, to ask the question, what does love require? Because that's the freedom that we have. And in Christ, we're free to love this way. Paul shows us an example of giving 100%. But, but Paul was just following the example that Barnabas, his partner, had set. You remember in Acts, the story of Barnabas, where he sold some of his property, and, and he didn't give 10% of his property. He gave the whole thing. He knew that there was a need in his church, and so he just gave the whole thing so that people could have their needs met. Barnabas gave 100%. But Barnabas was just following the example of his Lord, Jesus Christ, because you know that Jesus our Savior and Lord, he gave 100%. He didn't ask, how much is it going to cost? What's the minimum that I have to give to take care of these people who are rebellious and sinners? No. Jesus gave extravagantly beyond what was necessary. The Scripture says that though he was equal with God, he, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a slave or a servant. He humbled himself until death, even death on a cross. 
and all of this to accomplish cleansing us from our sins. But y'all, don't miss this. That's not all he accomplished. Second Corinthians says that he who knew no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did not die on the cross to take us out of the negative with God to zero and then leave us to kind of do the best that we can on our own. It's not what he did. Jesus took us out of the negative with God and then took his full, perfect righteousness and holiness before God and poured it out on all of us so that now our standing with God holy and clean and perfect and pure and acceptable. And there's nothing that we can add to what Jesus has already freely given to us. He did not just die just to take away your sin. He died to clothe you in his own righteousness. He gave 100% because he loves you. And so we also ought to give 100% out of love for one another. Let's pray. Eternal one, our minds are just too limited to take all of this in. Our hearts on their own are too hard, and too self-centered, and too self-dependent to readily receive this. But we know you know that. So would you cause your spirit to move and work right now in us. Help us to see and know the truth of what you have given to us so freely in Jesus. Help us to have hearts that are submissive, that don't demand that we rely on what we can do, but that we humbly rely on what Jesus has already done for us. Would you cause that realization in our hearts of the riches you have given us in Jesus to, to so overwhelm us that our hearts might spill over in gratitude and in joyfulness and a willingness to share and give with others because we've been made rich in Christ Jesus. Let our hearts be rooted in that love. Don't let anything inside of us or outside of us shake us from that unshakable foundation of love. Help us to grow more and more as a people who love like Jesus loves. We pray this in his name. Amen.